The word mitzvah has a number of meanings. First of all, the word mitzvah means commandment. Tzivui. An instruction, a commandment. So that when God gives a mitzvah, gives us a commandment, he's basically giving us an instruction as to what we should or shouldn't do, depending on whether it's a positive commandment or a negative commandment. If we go by this definition of the word mitzvah, it would make sense, what we hear quite often and you read about it, that a mitzvah is a discipline, that the virtue, the benefit that comes from, from following mitzvahs is that it disciplines you. It gives your life a, a discipline, it gives your, your personality a discipline. It's a discipline. It's also humbling. You obey a commandment, it's a humble act. You disobey a commandment, it's uh, the opposite of humble. Another meaning for the word mitzvah is joining. The word mitzvah means joining, connecting. So when God gives us a mitzvah, it's not only a commandment or an instruction, but it's also a method, a means, through which we can join ourselves with him. It joins us to him. The simple analogy given for that is that if you have a very great king, and in his kingdom there is a very plain and simple person, the king and this simple person live in two different universes. The king's universe is totally unknown to the simple person, and the simple person is totally unknown to the king. Unless the king asks the simple person to run an errand for him. The very fact that the king asks him to do something for him creates a bridge creates a connection between the universes, the worlds, in which the king and the simple man live their separate lives. If, in fact, the simple man does do something for the king, then that connection gets deeper. Because not only is the king aware of the simple man, and not only does the simple man feel that he somehow is recognized by the king, but he actually did something for the king. So the king recognizes not only the existence of the simple man, but also the usefulness. And the simple man not only is recognized by the king, feels recognized, but he also feels useful. If on top of that, when the simple man does this errand for the king, he does it, with enthusiasm, with with warmth, with feeling, then they're connected on three levels. They recognize each other's existence. They recognize the usefulness of that existence. 
in that the king sees that a person, a simple person can be useful, and the simple person feels that he is useful in the world of a king, but more than that, they actually get to like each other. Personal. So the mitzvah, regardless of what that act was, it serves as a bridge that brings together beings of two separate universes. In some cases, that's the only way, the only thing that can serve as a bridge. Because if the king is exceptionally brilliant and the simple man is unusually dull, then the bridge between them can't be a conversation. They can't have a conversation. They're too far apart in their lives and in their minds to carry on a conversation that's going to be of any significance. So on what level can they possibly meet? Only on the most basic level. The king has needs. And although these needs are very simple, they are still important to the king. And those things even the simplest person can fulfill. So the doing is the only bridge that can exist between two such different worlds. But thinking, meaning, intending, loving, these things can't exist. They're too far apart. An action can exist. No matter how far apart you are from another person, you can always do something for them. We should assume that every mitzvah is a two-way street. And that, again, in general, our attitude towards God has to be one of a relationship. And a relationship has to be two ways. If it's one way, then it's not a relationship. So when God had created the world, by the very act of creation, there already existed a one-way relationship. God is the creator, we are the result. But that goes nowhere. So in addition to creation, God also revealed himself. Revelation. What's the point or the purpose of revelation? To make creation a two-way street. Otherwise it goes nowhere. So in any, I mean, a guideline, a rule of thumb, Anytime you think about any aspect of Yiddishkeit, it has to make sense within the context of a relationship. As a matter of fact, it very rarely makes sense any other way. So to say that the mitzvahs were given for our benefit, so where's the relationship? That God is kind to us. He created us. He gives us health. He gives us intelligence. He even gives us mitzvahs that are good for us. Now what? So we do those mitzvahs. And you know what? If we do those mitzvahs, he will give us heaven. <laughs> he will reward us for it. He'll give us a portion in the world to come. What is this, a one-way thing? We just take, take, take? He gives, gives, gives. We take, take, take? So the mitzvahs are really a two-way street. As much as it's good for us, it must also be good for him. How can it be good for him? How can he need anything from us? Good question. But that's, but that's the fact. <clears throat> so, in this relationship, the word mitzvah itself means joining and connecting. 
But this explanation of how a mitzvah joins us is somewhat external, artificial. What we're saying is that the simple person and the king remain in two separate universes. But there's this object. The king needs his walking stick. The king needs his shoes, his slippers. And the slippers are over here. And the king is over there. And he doesn't want to bother to get up and take the... So if you bring him the slippers, then you're connected. But are you connected to the slippers? Is the king connected to his slippers? It's just an external thing. It's very nice that you can do something for a king. It very, feels very good. But to say that that joins you seems a little bit artificial. So that if mitzvah means joining, there must be a deeper meaning to it as well. Because how is it that doing this particular act or these 248 particular acts whether it's making a bracha or um, blowing shofar in Rosh Hashanah or sitting in a sukkah or any of the positive commandments how is it that those things connect you to God? Of course God said to do it but That doesn't connect you to the mitzvah. And also, how is the mitzvah connected to God? So if this mitzvah is supposed to be a bridge between us and God, then it should be something that we relate to, should be something that we're connected to, and something that on the other end of the mitzvah, God is connected to it. So Hasidus explains, when God came down at Mount Sinai to give us these mitzvahs, it wasn't that he had made up a set of rules, as necessary as rules may be. God made up a set of rules, and he wanted to tell us what those rules are. So he took us out of Egypt, gathered us at the foot of Mount Sinai, came down in thunder and lightning, and gave us the commandments. If God wanted to give us instructions on what we should and shouldn't do, why all this drama? This, I mean, this is Hollywood stuff. You want to tell us what we should do, so what's the difference whether we're sitting in Egypt or in Mesopotamia or in the foot of a mountain? Wherever we happen to be, come and tell us what we should do. What's with this shtick about going out of Egypt, crossing the sea with miracles? What for? What's all this for? And if he wanted a little privacy, <laughs> he didn't want anybody else around. So he had to take us into a desert. It just doesn't seem... And the thunder and the lightning, what's that for? I mean, everybody likes a little drama, but since when has God into this? Another thing is, the Rambam says in the 13 principles of faith. One of the 13 principles is that God will never change the commandments. That this Torah will never be changed. 
Not that we won't change it, but that God won't change it. And this is one of the 13 principles of our faith. So Hasidus asks, maybe it's true that God will never change these commandments, but why is it so crucial to know that? Why is that so central to Yiddishkeit that it has to become one of the 13 principles? It doesn't seem like such, an, such a crucial piece of information. And also, what would be so terrible if God did change them? It's his, it's his football. It's his game. It's his world. He wants to give us these commandments until tomorrow afternoon, and then tomorrow afternoon different commandments. Who's to say no? Well, you can argue with him. And doesn't it make sense as some philosophers have actually argued, that just as a father raising his son gives the son certain instructions that are relevant to a child, like don't play on the highway and uh, stay away from the razor blades and so on and so forth, but when he grows up, when the son is a little bit older, doesn't it make sense that the father now has to give him more adult instructions? He's outgrown or fulfilled, or, or already satisfied the earlier instructions, now he needs more advanced instruction. But it doesn't make any sense that a father should be able to give his son one set of instructions that will be relevant to the son no matter what age he is. As he gets older, he needs different instructions. So why would it be so terrible if after 3,000 years of living these commandments, okay, we got these right already, now we're ready for bigger commandments, better commandments, grown-up commandments. So again, Hasidus explains that when God came down at Mount Sinai, it wasn't to give us a set of instructions or a set of rules that were good for us, or that we needed to hear, or that will help us through life. The first word of the Ten Commandments, the first word of the Revelation, is the word Anoichi. Anoichi Hashem Alekecha, I am God, your God. But the word Anoichi, I am, is a strange word because it is not a Hebrew word. Or at least it wasn't until God used it as part of the Ten Commandments. The word in Hebrew for I is Ani, not Anoichi. And yet God uses a non-Jewish word, a non-Hebrew word, with which to begin the whole revelation. So the Gemara explains that the word Anoichi is an acronym. It stands for Anon Nafshi Ksovis Yehovis. Aleph Nun Chof Yud, Ano Nafshi Ksovis Yehovis. I give you my soul in writing. So when God came down and engraved his commandments on stone, he was basically saying, I'm giving myself to you. I'm writing myself down, not commandments, 
not instructions, not good advice, not even fatherly advice. When God came down at Mount Sinai, he basically revealed himself. That's why the drama. It wasn't that he was accompanying himself. He was accompanying the commandments with background drama, with thunder and lightning. If God is revealing himself, then the world trembled and shook. It wasn't drama. This is, this is how revelation affects the world if we're talking about God revealing himself. And we have a very important lesson. When God reveals himself, it's in private. As every self-revelation should be. If you're going to bear your soul, you do it in private. So God couldn't do it while Jews were in Egypt or in Mesopotamia or in Manhattan. He had to take us away from the tumult, away from the crowd, away from the public places, to a private place, because revelation is a very private, intimate thing, and you don't do it in public. <clears throat> also, in order for the Jew to be able to survive such a revelation, and not be overwhelmed, and not be destroyed by it, because of the intimacy of it, because of the power of it, we had to be prepared. We had to be um, conditioned. And that conditioning took 400 years. From the time that God told Avraham that his children will first go down to Egypt, then they will come out of Egypt and they will receive the Torah. More specifically, the preparation or the conditioning took 210 years. The 210 years of slavery in Egypt. More specifically, it took a year. The year in which Jews were still living in Egypt, but every month saw a new plague against the Egyptians. Or more specifically than that, it took 50 days from the day they left Egypt until the day the Torah was given. 50 days. And that's why we count 50 days, the Sphira, from the, day, from the second day of Pesach until Shavuos. Because those were the 50 days of preparation. By, in today's language, in today's vocabulary, if a human being could bear his soul, could reveal himself as totally, as unhesitatingly, as God did at Mount Sinai, he would today be considered the healthiest human being. Because we find that even when we try to do that, we can't. Even in the most intimate moments, we can't completely open ourselves up and bear our souls. We always hide something. We always hold something back. We always paint something over never letting ourselves be known completely. But God has no such hang-ups. He says, I'm going to reveal myself because I want you to know me. And what is there to know about God? Whatever there is, he revealed at Mount Sinai. If somebody 
even another human being, would reveal himself that way to you, you would be blown away. You'd be overwhelmed. You'd be scared. Because it's so intense and it's so true that it scares us. As for example, it says that when Moshe was wandering in the desert before, before he was sent down to take the Jews out of Egypt, and he saw the burning bush, and he approached it, and the Torah says that he was scared, he saw, and he was scared, and he fell on his face. So the Gemara says, what did he see? What did he see that makes him fall on his face? A burning bush, so. I mean, he wasn't a kid, he wasn't superstitious. He saw a bush burning, so what's the problem? You have to fall on your face. So the Gemara says, Ma what did he see? Emes he saw truth. He saw blatant, unadulterated truth. And whenever you see truth, you fall apart. Not necessarily in a negative way. In a positive way. But if the truth is too much for you to take, then as much as the falling apart is positive, it's not very useful. And that's why, in fact, it says that every, every commandment, every word that God spoke, with every word that God spoke, the Jews died. We passed out. And had to be revived for the next commandment. What did we die from? God says, don't steal. So you're going to die from that. So you won't steal. You'll try not to steal. <laughs> you promise not to steal. What's, what's to die from? it? God says, uh, don't, don't kill. No, so we have to faint. Besides which, everybody knew already that God doesn't like killing. From the time of Cain and Abel, we knew that God doesn't like killing. It wasn't even a new statement. So what were the people dying from? Not from the commandment. Not from the instruction. But from the fact that God was being totally open. Writing his soul, putting his soul into writing. Writing himself down on paper, on, on marble. Which explains a discussion in the Gemara. Two sages in the Gemara who are discussing what the response was, Jews' response to the commandments. What did we say when the commandments were given? One opinion is that for a positive commandment, our response was hen, yes. A negative commandment our response was love. No. The other sage's opinion is that for the positive commandment we said yes, and for the negative commandment we said yes. So when God said, honor your father and mother, we said yes. He said, don't kill, we said yes. Yes, we won't kill. The other opinion is, when God said, honor your father and mother, we said, yes, we'll do that. And when God said, don't kill, we said, no, we won't. So for this, they have to argue. 
What are they arguing about? I mean, what's the difference? Whenever there's an argument in Gemara, both opinions must be very valid. Otherwise, why are we recording this for all time to come? There are two opinions as to how we're supposed to approach commandments. One higher than the other. So one sage is giving us instruction on the basic level, how you're supposed to react to mitzvahs. The other sage is saying, yeah, but after that, there's a higher level that you're supposed to attain. So they're both talking about two different levels. They're not really arguing at all. The first sage says, when you hear a commandment, you respond to the commandment. You hear that God said you shouldn't do it. So you say, no, I won't do it. You hear that God says you should do it. So you say, yes, I will do it. You're responding to the commandment. And therefore, you can't respond the same way to a positive commandment as you do to a negative commandment. Different commandments, different responses. The other sage says, that's all true when you're responding to the commandment. Then you have to distinguish between positive and negative commandments. But you also have to respond to the commander beyond the commandment. And when you're responding to a commander, it doesn't matter what he's saying. The answer is always yes. So one sage says that the Jews responded on a very basic level. They responded to the commandment. And therefore, they had a different response for the different kinds of commandments. The other sage says, no, the Jews were on a higher level than that. The Jews weren't responding to commandments. They were responding to God. And therefore, when God said, honor your father and mother, we said, yes, whatever you say. He said, don't kill. We said, yes, whatever you say. Because there's only one commander. Why should you have two responses? In other words, were we responding to what was being said or were we responding to what was being revealed? What was being revealed was God himself. And therefore, on that higher level, our only response was yes. Yes to God. <clears throat> therefore, the Rambam says... If you understand Torah properly, if you understand and appreciate what mitzvahs are, you will then realize that these mitzvahs can never be changed. It's not like God can give us another set of mitzvahs tomorrow. These mitzvahs are, are Him. This is Him. When He reveals Himself, what comes out is don't kill, don't steal, honor your father and mother, keep Shabbos. That's what comes out when God bears his soul. So what's going to be if he bears his soul tomorrow? Same thing will come out again. To say that he can give us different mitzvahs tomorrow means that we understand the mitzvahs that we have today as mere instructions that God thought up. And so the analogy... The question of, doesn't it make sense that after we grow up a little bit, God should give us adult commandments, now that we're finished with the child commandments? That's if you're talking commandments. That's true. The father doesn't give the same instruction to an adult child as he did to the child when he was a baby. 
But we're not talking about instructions. We're talking about the father letting himself be known to the child. It's the same father. It's not going to change because the child got older. The child may appreciate more of his father than he did when he was a child. As he grows older, he appreciates it more. But it's the same father. If a person is an angry person, there's some people, they're very severe people. When a severe person opens his mouth, what comes out? Anger. Criticism. If a person is a very gentle person, what's going to come out when he opens his mouth? Kindness. If a person is a very evil person, what's going to come out of his mouth? When God opens his mouth, what comes out? Shabbos and Tefillin and that's what comes out. The word is the, is the negative commandments. When God allows himself to be seen, what do we see? Mitzvahs. That's what he is. Moshe asked God, let me see you. I want to see you. I want to get to know you better. Let me see you. So the Gemara says that there was a whole thing there with Moshe with a rock in the middle of the rock and the rock split and Moshe saw the back of God. So the Gemara says, what did he see? He saw the knot at the back of the tefillin. When you put tefillin on your head, so in the front of the head there is the box with the with the, with the uh, parchment chapters in it, and the back, you see where the straps are knotted before they separate and go down over the, each, over the shoulders. So what did Moshe see when God revealed his back? He saw the, the knot of the tefillin. What does that mean? I'm sure there are many meanings to it, but basically what it means is that when you get to see God, you see mitzvahs, because that's what God is made of. So if a person says, I think I've experienced, I've seen God. I think God talked to me. I climbed a mountain and I closed my eyes and I was close to God. How would we know whether they were or they weren't? Some guy comes out of the desert and he says, God spoke to me. And he told me this and that and the other. And we say, nah, don't be crazy. We're not Muslims. Or a group of guys get together and they say that uh, God spoke to them and told them to pass on the message that from now on we should do this, that, and the other. And we say, nah, the Enishkin Cup. Crazy. How do we know they're crazy? How do we know that they're wrong? How do we know to reject it? And when Moshe came and said, this is what God said, we didn't reject it. If the commandments are instructions, 
then there might be some grounds, there might be some reason to believe some guy who comes out of the desert and says, God spoke to me. And there are new instructions. But mitzvahs are not instructions. And what, Jew, what Jews experienced at Mount Sinai was not a set of Jewish laws that can sometimes be exchanged for some other laws. They weren't laws. They were God being himself. And God doesn't change. So when a person says, I have experienced God, I've seen, I felt God, I heard God, how are we to know whether that's true or not? Very simple. If somebody says, I just spent the summer in a jungle, you look at him and you can tell. I mean, there's certain signs. If you spend a summer in a jungle, you should at least have a few mosquito bites. There's telltale signs. They are the symptoms of a jungle. If somebody spent time in a desert, it should look like it. I mean, there are recognizable signs. If someone spent time in God's company, what kind of symptoms would we expect, would we look for? A halo? Does God give out halos? If you spent time with God, if you were close to God, then you would come back with Kashrus, or with Shabbos, or with Tefillin, or with Mikvah. I mean, what else? 